You want to find your tribe of raving fans, and that's just what we're here to help you do. This is the Tactical Titans podcast by Justin Lamb of the Tactical Program, where we help entrepreneurs build better businesses by not only sharing insights and candid conversations, but by nurturing our minds as well. Get ready to build, automate, and scale your business, because here we go. Here's your host, Chief Strategist of 360 Media and Educator at TacticalProgram.com, Justin Lamb. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Tactical Titans, where I help business owners build better businesses. And today, I'm being joined by Dave Ho, the CTO of York and Chapel a digital marketing firm, actually it should be more just like a marketing agency with notable clients like T-Mobile and Intuit. And uh, super happy that he's decided to uh, join me on the podcast today. Very lucky uh, to have some of your time. So thank you for joining me on the show today, Dave. Thank you, Justin. Great to be here. So Dave, tell me a little bit about what your role is at York and Chapel and what York and Chapel really does um, as a firm. Sure. So, um, I, so I'm the CTO of the company, uh, as well as one of the founders, <clears throat> and we are a full service agency, but concentrating um, on the technology side of things of um, marketing. So what we do is we deploy really advanced technologies, cutting edge technologies to help clients with their marketing needs, whether it be something as mundane as a website or uh, e-commerce, or as something really cutting edge like virtual reality or gamification or, uh, um, you know, helping them with events and video. We bring the technology edge to everything that we do. Fantastic. And, you know, how did that journey start? I mean, as a co-founder, you know, where did you meet your partners? And, you know, what was it like when you first started the organization? Sure. So... I started my career after graduating from Yale with a degree in design. So I did my master's degree in Yale. And afterwards, I was uh, um, lucky enough to be hired right out of school to be a partner in an agency. So I spent a decade there really learning you know, what it's like to be on the business side of things, right? Not just being somebody in the creative side of marketing, but how to run a company. Uh, from there, I started uh, my own firm. I brought on several partners from the, the agency I was at, as well as other friends and uh, uh, um, you know industry people that I've met you know over the years. Brought them into the company. Uh, my brother joined me in in, in the company. Uh, he was running his own agency out in San Francisco, and he joined me. So uh, what ended up w- was you know. A, a meeting of minds between you know several of us to say yeah we want to create an agency Not, nobody wanted to have a small independent single company so we were able to form a multi-office multi-city company right from the get-go by by you know merging forces together so that allowed us to grow very quickly right off the bat and and today we have you know six offices across the U.S. and Canada. Well, what a fantastic story. And, you know, I think a lot of people who are listening 
you know, oftentimes wonder how do agencies and or larger companies kind of form. And, you know, everybody's different. Some people are two founders and they started in the garage, uh, you know, built their empire and wealth, you know, one, one customer at a time. Uh, but yours is an interesting way to form a business, you know, uh, and, and in a sense, it's decentralizing the command from a central hub by having multiple offices and all, multiple businesses who are actually already operating, but then unifying their talent and resources for a larger project. Yeah, the funny thing is, uh, you know, our corporate headquarters where I was, was actually the only startup, right? The other offices already had established operations uh, and they they just kind of rebranded and, and uh, relaunched under this new umbrella. But uh, our office was actually literally the room above our gar- my garage. Uh, so <laughs> so it's definitely a garage story in there. And, uh, and, and we were there, you know, working in the room above my garage uh, for a year before we managed to get our own independent office and, and, and uh, start really growing the company here out uh, on the East Coast. Oh, that's fantastic. And, you know, I think one of the things that people struggle with, especially in that like growth phase is obviously cash flow, cash flow and funding. It's like the lifeline, the fuel for any given business. And that that's really important. Now, in in your experience, as you were growing your particular office, you know, how did that come about? And, you know, what type of challenges did you face as an entrepreneur, um, you know, given that you had already established uh agencies that are sort of bolting into the program you know, what what individual challenges do you have well as someone still starting out from scratch uh and still building an agency right even though we had offices that uh, were established you know willing to make that sacrifice willing to make the financial sacrifice going from uh, you know a six-figure job uh you know down to you know the 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 company you know, only making, you know, a few hundred thousand, you know, in the first year. So uh, um, that was a rude awakening. But, uh, you know, my partner here on the East Coast, you know, we were really in it for the long haul and, you know, willing to put in the work necessary to to build it up. Uh, the, The advantage we had was to leverage the other offices. So we were able to from a very early stage pitch, much larger clients than we had any right to do. So one of the calling cards for the company was, we were always working for larger clients than than our bank account suggested that we should be able to. So we luckily did have the experience of working for big companies that came from background that where we worked with the likes of Citibank and and, and, and IBM and Microsoft. So really big companies, Fortune 500 companies. So we were able to bring that experience over with us for at the new company. So really staying with that aspect and being choosy about the type of clients that we would work with, uh, trying to stay uh, um, with a certain kind of clientele uh, with the kind of budgets that allowed us to do uh, really, you know, award-winning work, and uh, um, and to know that we're appreciated for for what we do. I think that's really important for the people who are listening because you know a lot of the, our listeners are small business owners, and 
you know, they aspire to work with large corporations and large agencies. I mean, we, our production company, 360, we were fortunate to work with large uh, agencies as well. Uh, and, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't come easy. Uh, and, and I think, you know, I, I have, you know, the methodologies that we did to, to get in front of other agencies and larger scale projects. Uh, but I always like to hear from other people uh, who, you know, equally have had to, to develop those, those inroads. And I think it's interesting for, for our, view, our listeners about, you know, what was the pitch process like? Because I think a lot of them feel overwhelmed or stifled uh, because they, they're too small and they don't want to try, you know, and you didn't really technically have that mentality one because you kind of had other agencies uh, besides you kind of, you know, helping you through the process. But, you know, can you walk me through some of the first, you know, big pitches you had and, you know, what were some things that you guys had to prepare uh, or over-prepare that, you know, you needed to do in order to make sure that you landed the first account or second accounts? Well, we were always very fortunate to have great connections uh, to start off with, but we earned a lot of the work uh, through very creative pitching. And sometimes we're shocked about who we were going up against, you know, it, you know, global agencies, multi-billion dollar agencies like uh, Pluvisis and Ogilvy and Gray that uh, we had no rights to pitch against, but we had a super creative team over the years and worked with really, uh, you know, incredible writers and designers and tacticians um, and strategists so that we really developed a very strong portfolio of work that we could lean against. We were never the kind of agency that would spend an outrageous amount of money uh, doing spec work right? Just, just to get in front of the client. And we just would decline. Uh, it was easy to decline when we didn't have the resources to put against something like that, right? So, so it's easy to say no when, uh, you know, you, you couldn't afford to spend a month and, uh, you know, hundreds of man hours to do something on the speculation that uh, the client might hire you. So we stayed away from things like that and really concentrated on the opportunities that uh, we knew that that there were uh, you know fewer agencies pitching, so we declined you know any job that had you know a lot of agencies or it was more of an open pitch. Sometimes it's hard to decline these kind of opportunities when they land on your doorstep, but you have to really choose you know what to spend your limited resources on, and sometimes smaller agencies really have a difficult time on doing that because. Every job pays the bill, you know, every job, uh, uh, you know, pays your employee. So uh, so we've had, you know, over the years, uh, you know, at specific times, really taken a look at our client list and actively purged them uh, of clients that, you know, didn't make sense for us of where we were at that stage of our company. That might have made sense, you know, a few years back. Um you know, the, either it was the type of work or the, the size of the client or the quality of work that the, the client was eliciting, we would say, you know, these clients no longer make sense for us. We need to um, move on from them and, and uh, try to find new clients that would allow us to get to the next level. So, uh, so at various stages, I remember very distinctly having to do that. And it was painful 
one year we decided, you know, we really needed to get to the next stage of, of our growth. And we took a look at about 30% of our revenue that we basically needed to jettison uh, in order to get to the next stage. And it was a really hard decision to make, but that allowed us to nearly double in size over the next year and a half. Oh, that's phenomenal. Yeah. And, and you know what? Spec work is really difficult to take on when you have limited resources. Uh, I remember the the time in our career where you know, we were looking at, do we do spec ads and do we do spec work? Um, you know, and then allocate all the resources to doing that work, but then having to say no to real work that came in. So, you know, we, I made a decision pretty early on. I think by year four, I decided like that, that was it. We weren't going to do spec. Um, and we would just focus on trying to produce great work uh, at the time. So, you know, it was really great to hear that other people do that too. And that, you know, spec ads are great, but, you know, they it, don't, don't deceive ourselves that, you know, it, it takes a lot of our time and resources. And when, when those things are, are finite, um, you know, especially in, in the development and growth phase of things, you know, I would never want to kill cash flow for the possibility to land something. Um, and, and I would rather build slowly and, and make conscious steps uh, rather than, you know, kind of trying to hit the Hail Mary pass, so to speak. Yeah, it's a gamble. Right. And sometimes the gamble pays off and end up with a great client and, you know, you know, a fantastic project, but it's still a gamble. And, you know, as you're growing the, the company, you know, you have to weigh the risk reward ratio. Right. Uh, um, it's the same as like going into a pitch where there's uh, a lot of client, a lot of uh, agencies versus fewer agencies. So if you're able to have that insight, it kind of just helps stack the deck in your favor. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me a little bit about um, your experience in terms of how the landscape for digital marketing has changed. Because we know over the last 10 years, I mean, it's been astronomical in terms of uh, where where marketing uh, in the digital space started, you know, in the, the premise of starting of SEO and and web search, and now you know as robust as Facebook and Instagram ads, where you know you can really fine tune and target an audience, and then now going into AI, what what would you guys have to do to adapt, and you know where do you find um, success in in technology? Because I mean that is sort of the core crux of of your your company's um, uh, secret sauce, so to speak, right? It's uh, you guys are deeply rooted into technology. Yes. Um, so, you know, I, th I think there's a few things, you know, we've always been an agency that has adapted to the times. So that's one of the key aspects of how we uh, have grown uh, and sustained ourselves. So we are opportunistic and we really monitor the landscape of technology so that we try to stay ahead, not only for ourselves, but for our clients. So, you know, going from uh, a body of work that was primarily web-based to uh, uh, being strongly invested in e-commerce as, as e-commerce took off. And then as mobile apps became popular and a real force in marketing, uh, we were uh, in there very early, you know, launching, helping our clients launch 
uh, apps within you know one year of the Apple App Store being up. We were super early to social media. I remember about uh, 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 six month periods where where we started pitching Facebook as as a uh, avenue for advertising and marketing and getting the word out and 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 uh, public relations and basically getting the door slammed in our face. Right, clients going, what what's Facebook? Why should I be talking? you about this and then literally you know facebook being featured on the cover of like time magazine and and the new york times and 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 places and suddenly getting all these calls from clients like i remember you you know six months ago talking to me about this can you come back in you know uh and then we ended up with projects from uh, uh from reebok and lexus and Land Rover and um, the Men's Health, and that that all kind of came back to us saying, "Hey, you know, we realize that that this is an avenue that we need to you know fully explore." And it looks like you guys are ahead of the curve, right? So, uh, so while we preach digital transformation for our clients, right, evolving your business, taking advantage of technology, we do that ourselves. Uh, so, you know, over the years, there's been numerous times that we've continued to push the edge of technology. So, uh, you know, great example is uh, with virtual reality, right? So with VR, you know, we're, we're doing, uh, uh, um, and, and even though it might not be, you know, super in the news these days, there was certainly a time when it was like, you know, the hottest thing around, right? But uh, VR adoption through pandemic has skyrocketed kind of quietly. Right, uh, uh, Oculus has sold millions and millions of units of their their headset, uh, um, and and I think the, the the statistics are that it's the fastest adoption of technology ever, faster than the television, faster than the smartphone, uh, uh, faster than cellular phone, and so you know it sort of the the hype around it died down, but um, people are voting with their with their pocketbook, right? And and uh, um, right just before the pandemic, we were working on on a project uh, with uh, uh, with two clients that I can't name, but uh, uh, Fortune 500s, um, Fortune 100s actually, um, and we helped them de- develop a, a VR product centered around um, a VR therapy for. Um, people with autism, uh, and as you might know, you know people with autism have um, an inability to to um, manage social situations, right? They, you know, they they when they have conversations, it's difficult for them to make eye contact, stay on topic, um, and they're uh, um, they perform you know differently uh, in different social situations. So a lot of therapy around autism deals with getting them comfortable with different social situations. So what VR allows them to do is to actually be in these social situations and practice, you know, having a conversation, practice making eye contact, um, practice interacting with a fellow student at school, practice going through the airport, 
or going to the mall. And uh, um, with um, our technology partner, we were able to do um, things like eye tracking uh, so that they uh, couldn't make pro the proper amount of you know, eye contact, uh, neither staring off into the distance nor you know, looking so intensely, it looks like you're staring during a conversation. Um, uh, we were able to track their heart rate uh, with a smartwatch so that we can measure their level of stress. Um, and the doctors and clinicians can control the level of stimulant in the environment for them. So this is, uh, you know, was, a, was an opportunity for us to really kind of push the envelope beyond even marketing into creating a product that uh, really made a difference in people's lives. Oh, that's super cool. Uh, and you know, it, you're you're right. I mean, in terms of VR, it's been a silent rise, and it, and you know the the buzz around it was maybe more prevalent just prior to the pandemic. Um, but you know, through the pandemic, I think everybody went quiet, and everybody feels like they're going outdoors. But you know, the the more that I look at my Facebook feed of you know people looking and purchasing Oculus units have gone up significantly. You know, and, and oh, yeah, they've both, sold out. I mean, they yeah. were completely sold sold out for for at the beginning of the pandemic, and they've been selling like hotcakes. They were they were really hard to get a hold of. I think they're back in stock now, but you know, they uh, uh, they were really hot about three years ago, right? Uh, um, and there was so much hype about them. And when the pandemic took hold, you know, the the focus on them died down, rightfully so, because people had other things to worry about. But it didn't stop people from buying. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, between VR and AR, I think both uh, both mediums are are poised for astronomical growth in the next little while. I mean, AR is is totally taking over the gamification realm, um, you know, and and it won't be long before before it becomes a real mainstream thing with you know glasses and stuff that are coming along the way and uh, from absolutely. Google and, and whatnot. So no, it's really really quite interesting. So then, in terms of advertising. Where do you see the the next frontier? I mean, you're here on a podcast, and this is still quite an early platform uh, by by nature. I mean, I think for people who don't know, podcasts are really the, maybe the last two to three years where it's really kind of caught fire, and with a little bit over a million uh, sort of content creators, it's nowhere near the the amount of creators that are say on YouTube, but I mean, it's a growing medium and then of course the spin-off of things like clubhouse um and then you know the other mediums like what where are you where are you going to place your bets the casino table of marketing uh for the next little while where would you where would you put money down um <clears throat> i mean interestingly enough you know we've we've done a lot of uh both research and kind of brainstorming around the future of marketing in a post-pandemic world. And, you know, where we've come down on is <clears throat> how to help our clients market with uncertainty, right? Uh, uh, so, that, so that they can uh, uh, still go to market with uh, their, their, you know, new products and launches and, and uh, a new activity around their brand, continue to promote their brand. Uh, in in a world where you know the pandemic continues to change, 
uh, you know, there, there's a possibility that, uh, you know, COVID never goes away, right? And what does that mean for the world and how we interact? Um, so some of the interesting things that we've, we've taken a look at is um, uh, how to manage the marketing of events, right? So people don't want to be cooped up forever, right? Um, and at, and at, at the slightest hint that things are opening back up, people want to get out. And yet how can marketers uh, create events that are safe and uh, um, you know, in, employ uh, low touch or no touch uh, events? Um, so we've, we've looked into uh, deploying a number of technologies that include uh, gesture recognition, facial recognition, um, uh, technologies in order to uh, interact with digital displays. Right, so um, a for instance is, you know, uh, McDonald's has had rolled out in a lot of places and certainly across Canada, even more than the U.S. These digital displays for ordering, right? So no longer do you go straight up to the front table. You can order, you know, on a digital screen, uh, pay for it, and just you know pick up your food. Well, we're looking at technology now that allows you to do the same thing, but with hand gestures. So you never touch the screen. So, uh, um, you know, it's utilizing technology that's already existing and in place, but in new and innovative ways in, you know, just, just to make sure that, that we can operate safely in this kind of new frontier that we're in. So, uh, um, so events is a big part of our business and, so we've really doubled down on making sure that that we can help market uh, uh, you know, with with events and and activations and product launches in a way that uh, um, that's suitable for the times. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've seen that here. I mean, uh, the production agency at three sixty here, um, we noticed that as soon as the the sanctions are lifted for for in person gatherings. We, within weeks, we had a 500 person event take over a, a huge parking lot. And, you know, that's what the planners had to overcome. It's like, how do you create the lowest touch points? And, you know, you're right. I think, you know, with such an uncertain path ahead of us, I think it's a really big challenge for marketing agencies and activation uh, companies, you know, such as, such as ourselves and yourself um, to have to navigate that world and gestures, you know, is such a fascinating you know, medium to, to kind of play in. I mean, it sounds like you know, for the people who are maybe old as I am, but it sounds like you're just like dismantling a bunch of, you know, connect 360s because that's where gestures first started in the Microsoft um, uh, enterprise where, you know, you could use touch and, and, um, and visual uh, uh, control over, of, over an interface. And, you know, having to do that, of course, at a much more elegant scale, I'm going to guess, but <laughs> being able to do mm -hmm. that uh, to, to help bring people through uh, an experience, but not taking away the actual connection and experience is going to be you know, such a, a large, you know, hurdle for you guys. But I think it will be so satisfying when, when it's done um, and you guys are, are launching them worldwide and, and ahead of period. So that's, that's really fantastic to, to hear that you, know, you guys are at the forefront of that. Well, the funny thing, of course, is that uh, um, 
technology has so advanced that you don't need those special 3D sensing multiple lens cameras anymore. You can do it with a webcam now because the AI is so intelligent that they can track your hand, right? They can track each finger and each gesture uh, that, that you make uh, just using a flat, you know, single lens image. You don't even need the 3D anymore. Um, and uh, uh, we were just prototyping a technology for one of our clients where you can navigate a web page just by gesture, right? Using the webcam on your laptop, you can scroll up and down uh, a web page. Uh, you can pinch and zoom an image, all without touching the screen. So, yeah, and and, and that can de be now deployed just on a website, right? Uh, uh, without any additional hardware, uh, without any you know special uh, uh, software. These uh, um, JavaScript-based uh, libraries that uh, that you can deploy for it. Yeah, and so technology it's, a, it's a democratization, right? It's a real democratization of uh, the, the the technology that goes, you know, that started in labs and universities, and now is available for you know marketing companies to deploy. And so let's move into the AI portion because I'm a little bit fascinated by it because more and more I see people trying to turn to automation, turn to artificial intelligence to perform some of that work. Now, there's a part of me that feels like there needs to be that creative human element that AI doesn't necessarily replace. And what are your thoughts about implementing AI and where does AI fail in terms of really creating a bond and connection with the end user and client, um, you know, where a person still needs to be or a human, you know, interaction still needs to be. Where do you find uh, AI is most useful from you know a digital marketing standpoint, and where where should people really not do it just because it's there? <laughs> right. Um, so AI is still a gap technology, right? There's still a gap between uh, um, how you want it to function and how it actually functions. So even the best uh, um, AI chatbots are still limited. Um, but they're growing by leaps and bounds, right? And you can't can't deny that. Um, so we we've deployed, you know, AI speech synthesis uh, uh, success quite successfully, uh, and that's gone, you know, a, a long way, right? Uh, naturalistic speech is like, I would say, like ninety percent there, right? So you can obviously still tell that it's a computer voice, but Obviously, on YouTube, you hear them all the time, right? So you you have a you know a, a, some sort of animation or something like that, and and there's a computer voice, right? Um, and usually, actually, the the ones that they use on YouTube are not very good, and there are better it's ones out there. Ones. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Google's uh, um, uh, voice AI uh, uh, synthesis. I forgot the name of it, but it's it's really fantastic and uh and you can you can program it like html so that it has tone and inflection so that when it reads back text you can control its pace its uh uh um its its rhythm its speed you know uh and and tone of voice and uh, all these attributes so it's actually very very flexible 
um, so that you can mark up uh, a speech using HTML you know, comments and have it read back exactly the way that you want it to. Um, and I would say that it's, like I said, about 90% there. And, you know, yeah, and you compare that with, uh, um, you know, deep fakes and um, uh, voice uh, synthesis that, uh, you know, changes uh, to, to match, let's say, a celebrity, right? So you can do things, I think, that um, are fun uh, with with it being totally recognized that it's not a person. And I think if you do it that way, I think stylistically um, it works, right? So that you, so that the audience, you're not trying to fool the audience in thinking that, uh, you know, there's the other, there's another person on the, the, the end of that chat bot, right? Um, and I think companies that try to do that um, are less successful. I mean, companies that uh, utilize the technology upfront and just say straight up what it is uh, um, are more respected by their audience and they can push the envelope further and they can, you know, use it in sort of very innovative ways. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I, I really do believe that people are trying to deceive you and say that, you know, that uh, that chatbot that is responding to you is a real human being, you know. It doesn't really start you off on a on a good footing uh, with your end consumer, and I think you know being upfront about that and saying, "Hey, this is part of the process," uh, and it's just kind of helping us out as part of that process and trying to make your user experience better. You know, please interact with it, and and you know, at some point or another, you know, a real human is going to step into that process with you. I think that's a, a much better way to go. That authenticity and that uh, ability to be uh, transparent with with that uh, transaction is is super par- paramount nowadays, at least in this marketing world. Yeah, and I think that that you know some people in in certain um, audience groups can really benefit from it, right? So imagine someone who is visually impaired; they would uh, love to utilize a voice synthesis uh, assistant, you know, on the website and being able to read back text uh, um, in a totally naturalistic manner would, you know, drastically improve their user experience. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so I have one final question related to technology for today's uh, podcast, but, you know, Apple and Facebook have had a war coming on and brewing for the last little bit. And, you know, one is basically nerfing the other. How has that affected you as an agency in terms of marketing? Um, You know, what, what do you think is on the horizon? Is Facebook marketing going to be uh, a, a really uh, restrictive medium going forward, or do you think that it still functions fairly well and you know still has a lot of life left in it? Well, uh, it has a lot of life left in it. I mean, um, their advertising p- platforms are powerful and will continue to be powerful. However, I think that you know Apple stands on privacy. Uh, is going to uh, generate, you know, uh, uh, um, a change in the industry that, um, you know, Facebook won't be able to stop. Uh, um, It's what the consumer wants. They want more control over the data, more control over privacy. There's lots of concerns about how your data is being used. 
that's being backed up by the European Union's uh, privacy data, uh, data privacy laws. Google's getting on board to you know further restrict the Android platform. So in a sense, uh, battles uh, the battles already been won. And Apple's already, you know, succeeded in pushing their privacy agenda. Now, it certainly helps them. Let's let's not kid ourselves, right? No, it, yeah, right. It, it certainly helps them as hardware producers to to be able to crow about the fact that they're they're leaders in in privacy. But uh, um, but they've they've turned the tide on this. There's there's no way that Facebook's going to be able to say no. We're going to continue to track all your movements and 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 you utilize that data for the benefits of our advertisers. So from our end as marketers and advertisers, we have to find new and different ways of doing things. I don't think that there's going to be any problem around that because technology solves all issues. <laughs> you know. Uh, um, you know, we didn't know we had the problem until technology came up with the problem, uh, and technology will find you know ways uh, um, around it, allow us to do the kind of work that uh, that we need to do, uh, reach our audience, be be responsive to them, um, and still be respectful of their data, their privacy. You know how we handle information. I think a more restrictive way of handling privacy um, uh, uh, can only help those who do it well um, and uh, and but it will hurt those who you know rely on you know purchasing you know data information you know as a shortcut to good marketing and sensible marketing and smart marketing so those companies will you know probably suffer and not be able to kind of deliver the kind of results they could by using you know um, personal data as a shortcut Fantastic. That's really great insight. And I think you're completely right about it. I think a lot of people who are working on their marketing will really now have to learn how to take it into their own hands, understand what that looks like, and then be able to find the right agencies that are going to be able to help them instead of trying to find the people who are taking shortcuts through it. Um, so, you know, thank you for, for that insight. Uh, if somebody wants to get a hold of you and your, your agency, how are they going to get a hold of you? ways through our website uh, and that's www.yorkandchapel.com and uh, um, and yeah there's contact information there and you can take a look at some of our latest work fantastic and of course everybody i'm going to put that in the description below so make sure you go ahead and check out dave and his team's work now dave i always ask everybody at the end of my podcast what is a book or a resource that has deeply impacted your career or life? And I know I gave you a little bit of time before the preamble. I'm hoping you came up with a book for this uh, question. So were you able to come up with one? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, and, and I dig way back uh, in, in, in ancient history to, to my education. Um, I was fortunate enough to, uh, um, uh, you know, get my graduate degree from Yale and uh, one of the professors there, one of the most famous professors there at, at, uh, um, who retired um, at, the, at around the time that I started school there is Paul Rand. And Paul Rand, for those who are in the kind of creative field, you know, he's the godfather of uh, uh, modern New York, New York school of design, right? Uh, um, Mid-century uh, designer, famous for designing the corporate identity for IBM and UPS 
and and some, some of the just biggest you know corporations in the world. He was a tour de force uh, um, of not o- not only as a as a creative genius, but also as an educator. Uh, taught many years at Yale, and uh, and his uh, book Thoughts on Design was um, a great. Uh, learning tool and a Bible of mine for for many years, and in in some aspects uh, of, of uh, his life, I've uh, and and his work, I've tried to to emulate. Um, and you know, one of the, the 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 stories I heard is you know um, when he passed away, that he was you know working from the hospital bed, you know, dictating designs to his assistant, uh, um, you know, all the way to the very end. Uh, what that spoke to me about was not just uh, um, a work ethic, um, but also love and passion for for the job. Right, um, I'm fortunate to be in a creative field where it doesn't feel like I'm working. You know, so uh, so when you love what you do, uh, uh, every day is not not long enough to to do the work that you need to do. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, that is actually a really great book. Uh, I have read through it uh, a number of years ago, uh, but it re- does remind me to go back and, and maybe revisit it, um, you know, I think with new fresh eyes, uh, given given the decades of, of work I've put in since I've read that. But uh, no, that is a, that is really great for you to share. And thank you. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Again, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. I hope you had a great time. I learned, certainly learned a few things and uh, hopefully our listeners did too. Thanks so much, Justin. I really enjoyed myself. We want to thank you for listening to the Tactical Titans podcast produced by 360 Media. Your time is valuable and we're deeply humbled that you are spending this time with us. We'd love to connect with you. Find us on Instagram at 360photo and at Tactical Program. You can also email us. We want to make this channel great, something you enjoy and find tons of value. Send us your insights to info at 360photo.com. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. It helps us reach more listeners. As always, tune in next week as we help you become titans of business and marketing.